Well, good morning. It's good to be with you here in your habitat. <laughs> My name's Scott. It's great to be with you. Uh, Angela would say the same if she was here. She was here in the first service. Um, and she is from here. I married cross-culturally. I'm from Texas, and I married a PA, central PA girl, and so we have mashed potatoes and pork on New Year's Day, and uh, we had shoe fly pie yesterday afternoon, and so we are, uh, you know, back in her homeland. Um, and as we've come here over the years to visit family, it's been my joy to get to know some of the other like-minded pastors in the area, uh, Benjamin certainly being one of those. And when he heard that I was in town and he could take Father's Day off from preparing a sermon and minister to his 57 kids, he <laughs> invited me to come along. So it is uh, with great joy that I get to share with you this morning. It's a joy to meet with your outreach team. We had a good time earlier in this week, so just great to get to know another church that's passionate for making disciples here in Harrisburg, uh, but around the world as well. And so what we're going to do this morning is we are going to look at Scripture, Redeemer Church, where I have the privilege of pastoring and serving. What we normally do on a Friday morning is the same as what you would do here on a Sunday morning, uh, which is we gather for worship, to pray, uh, to sing, uh, and to look at God's Word. And we preach through books of the Bible, which I believe as you do as well, seeking to expose through expositional preaching what's there in the Word. So we're going to do a little bit of that this morning, as well as try and share with you a little bit about some of what the Lord is doing Uh, in Dubai. Well, before we do that, let me uh, pray. So join with me in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come before your word together, to be empowered by your spirit, to know Christ more for your greater glory. Amen. Well, it was Christmas Eve a few years back, and a Shy couple walked into the back of a hotel ballroom in Dubai. This couple had come at the invitation of friends to Redeemer Church of Dubai's annual Christmas Eve gathering, where we get together and we tell the story of the birth of Jesus, share the gospel. And this couple had never been in a Christian worship gathering before. They were from an unreached people group. They were from Iran. They grew up in a place where they not only did not believe the gospel, but they had no access to the gospel. There was not a Christian witness around them. And they came to Dubai not to receive religious instruction or uh, come to faith. Their ambition in coming to Dubai was to make money. They came for work, as so many have. But through friends inviting them along to this Christmas Eve gathering, their first time in a Christian worship gathering, their first time hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. We'll call them Martin and Maria. Later, Martin would tell me that in that gathering, he felt a warm sensation come over him. He felt like he knew what he was hearing was the truth. Through the follow-up of our members, as they explained the gospel to him over the course of the next weeks, within a couple of months, Martin and Maria were firmly repenting of their sins, believing in Jesus Christ for salvation, and had been baptized in the membership of our church. Now, there's a few remarkable things about that story. I could talk all day about it. There's a church meeting in the Middle East, publicly gathering for worship. Yes. That church is gathering people from different nationalities. Yes. Iranians are coming to faith. 
Yes. Well, two of those things, I want to touch on them, and then we'll get to the third towards the end. The first two, that there's a church in the Middle East, and that church is of different nationalities. That is the story of Redeemer Church of Dubai. Now, if you don't know much about Dubai, that's okay. I'll tell you really quick. I love Dubai. I love the city. I could talk all day about it, uh, but you've got Father's Day brunch to get to. Dubai, as of 50 years ago, was a few mud huts around a creek in the desert. This was not a well-known place. This was a place that was never colonized, not because they were powerful, but because they were worthless. There was literally no point in putting military effort into conquering the place because there was nothing there. Just a few Bedouins in the desert. Well, those Bedouins were sitting on something of great value, which was oil. And over the coming years, and starting from the 50s as the oil was discovered after World War II into the 60s, an avalanche of money came that direction. They exported the oil and got their reward. In Dubai, although it's a very small place, and to this day, the the oil economy in Dubai is just a few percentage points of their uh, national income, their uh, state income. What Dubai did more than others was invest directly into becoming the crossroads of that whole region. They invested into travel and transportation. You might have heard of Emirates Airline, now the largest uh, by passenger traffic international airline in the world, serving the largest by international passenger traffic airport at Dubai Airport. They invested in shipping. They invested in business and finance, coming, trying to become a trading post for all of the Middle East Africa and India, and for the most part, achieving that. This city that was once just a few Bedouins on sand became millions of people. And one way that that happened was through missionaries. Christian missionaries came to Dubai before there was oil. They came to Dubai not because to make money, but because there was a problem. Around uh, in the late 1940s, early 50s, some medical missionaries came to what is now known as Dubai And they came because the ruling family appealed to them to come. At the time, if you were a mother giving birth, the percentages, the likelihood was either you or the child was going to die because their medical care was non-existent. They really had no idea how to care for sicknesses, injuries, things like delivery, um, baby deliveries. So these medical missionaries came. They set up a maternity ward. They just tried to provide basic medical care to these mothers and fundamentally changed then the dynamic there in the Emirates. Emiratis have said that if those missionaries hadn't come, our people would be extinct. Missionaries literally saved the Emirati people. And so as the wealth came in, as the skyscrapers began to pop up across the desert, as the world's tallest building was built and the world's largest shopping mall was constructed, This relationship between the Christian missionaries and the ruling families who had been born at their hospital now was good. So then as these people were moving in from all these different nationalities, over nine out of ten people in Dubai at this point are from somewhere else. They're not local Bedouin Emiratis. They are African. They are Nigerian. They are Congolese, they are Kenyan, they are Filipino, they are Indian, they are Iranian, they're from so many different nationalities. So the evangelical community was able to ask permission to the ruling authorities. You know, hey, there's a lot of us now. Do you mind if we build a building? 
So a church building was built on the edge of town. A number of years later, in, the, in 2010, a similar request was made to the government. Not can we continue worshiping in this building, but we've, we've outgrown this building. Do you mind if we start meeting in a hotel over here on the other side of town? That's how Redeemer Church was planted in 2010. A gospel preaching church in the middle of what was at that time the fastest growing city in the world. And now that church, as was mentioned, serves dozens of nationalities. 60 is the last count we stopped counting. I met people from all over the world, from big places and from small places. A few I've had to look up on Wikipedia just to know where they are. But as we gather in that city, as God's children, as the song goes, red, black, yellow, brown, and white, we gather as children of the Father. And that's what I want to turn our attention to from Scripture this morning. If you have your Bibles or you can tap to one, Look in chapter 3 of Ephesians. That's where we're going to be spending some time. Ephesians chapter 3. In Ephesians chapter 3, what we're doing is is we're kind of parachuting into a lot that's going on. Ephesians is this phenomenal book. It's probably my favorite book in the New Testament. I love Ephesians. It's power-packed with encouragement, with challenge. If you're ever discouraged, just go ahead and read Ephesians chapter 1. Remember who you are in Christ. If you're ever feeling prideful, go ahead and read Ephesians chapter 2. Remember that you were dead, and the Lord made you alive. If you're looking into the church and you're wondering, how how can we be the body of Christ? Well, Ephesians 2 and Ephesians 3 is talking about that. One new man in Christ Jesus. And before he gets to really digging into some of the practical relational aspects of how do we use our giftedness in the church and what are marriages and parenting, what what do things look like in the life of the church, Paul stops and he says, you know what, if if this is going to happen, if you're really going to be the church that Christ has called you to be, if this Christian thing is really going to have any strength, we better stop and pray. And that's what he does. He reports to us how he's praying because he knows that all of this good theology, if practiced perfectly, on their own strength, would matter for nothing. Only by the Spirit's power can this actually merit spiritual fruit. And so he prays to that. Let me read verses 14, 15, and into 16 a bit. Ephesians 3, 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened. Well, so we see first what Paul's up to. He's, he's bowing. He's in this posture of prayer and of worship, of adoration. But then the question is who? To whom? Where is this directed? Where is this going? Who is this being? Well, he he tells us. It's the Father. The Father. Now, here on Father's Day, we're thinking about not just a father, not just a pretty good father, but the Father. And the language of of this verse is actually literally that God is, he's bowing before the Father from whom every fatherhood you might have that footnote, 
in heaven and on earth is named. So what he's, what he's emphasizing here is the fatherness of God. That God is the father. He's not, just the, he's not just a father who has a few children. He's the father from who all fathers get their identity, get their authority, get their responsibility, find themselves to be who they are. He's the one. He is the source. He says about this father that he's going to grant them strength according to the riches of, their glory, of his glory. Now, that's an interesting kind of father. I don't know about you, but, but my father didn't have riches of glory. He had a lot of things, but not riches of glory. What does that mean? I think, first, I think the chapter 1 tells us a little bit about it. You don't have to look there, but in chapter 1, he speaks about the father again, or at first he does. In verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father. So, same idea, same being. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, that's amazing. Only the one who has authority over everything in the heavenly places would have the ability to bless others with it. So this God who is the Father is the ultimate of everything. There is nothing in heaven in which he cannot use to good. Well, Paul goes on. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Well, how do you make decisions before the foundation of the world? It means you were there before the foundation of the world. It means that this God, the God and Father, he was eternally existent. And he was there before the foundations of the world because he was the one who created the world. So you get where I'm going here. He's the one who has everything in heaven. Everything in heaven is at his disposal. That means everything that is, is his. And then he didn't just leave it there, but he, he made it into something. He created the world. He, before the foundation of the world, he was choosing, he was deciding, and then he did something. He acted into time and created the world. Verse 4 goes on, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Well, this father, he doesn't just have everything. He didn't just create everything. He is the one who is able to take what, if, what chapter 2 will say is deadness, is destruction, is disobedience, is unworthiness. And he is the one who is able to make those kind of people holy. He's able to make those that are enemies of himself into likeness of himself. The only one that can do that is the one who is the source of holiness and blamelessness. So you start to, start to learn about this father, how different he is from us. You know, this is what theologians call the idea of God's transcendence, his transcendence. I know that's a big word for Sunday morning. It's a theological term. It's the idea that God is different. He is not like us. You know, we're tempted to think of God as just the best version of us. This, you might be, uh, remember this from the idea of like Greek mythology. 
in Greek mythology, the gods were, were just like us, but they were better. You could contrast this with like a Hindu or Buddhist methodology or, or thinking. Their idea is that the body is bad. And so we want to get to the spirit. The spirit is good. There, so the Hindu and Buddhism methodology and thinking and theology is, is dwelling in that transcendent world where everything's different. That's, that's what we need. Remember, uh, Angel and I, we used to live in India before we moved to Dubai. And we were walking around this temple, this Hindu temple, and they had their inscriptions and uh, different things on the walls of the temple. And there was one kind of quotation from their scripture. And it said, uh, you know, all who don't follow in the way of Shiva, I think it was, uh, are condemned, condemned to eternal life. So to a Hindu, the worst possible thing is eternal life. Why? Because the greatest goal is to escape life. It's to escape this physical world and escape um, this, this created order. They're possessed with the idea of transcendence. Well, our God is transcendent. He is different. He is set apart. He is God himself. He is spiritual and he is in the heavenly places and he is the source of those things. And yet he has made himself known to us. Not as a Greek God, as Jesus Christ. John chapter 1 says, no one knows the Father. No one has seen the Father. Christ has made him known. Christ has made him known. I don't know about you who are fathers here this morning. But I didn't really understand fatherhood until I had a son, until I saw him. I knew, I knew things about fathers. I knew my father. I knew what a father was like. If you asked me, uh, what is a father? I could have told you some characteristics. And that's sort of how God is referred to in the Old Testament times. Um, when he is called the father in the Old Testament, it's really just about 12 times, 12 or 15 times. And the Old Testament, God is referred to as father. And it's more like it's talking about he has a characteristic like a father. But I don't know about you, but, but when I had my first son, Judson, I don't know this experience isn't universal, but perhaps you can get the, the feel of it. When I held Judson in my arm, I, I, had, I knew about fathers and I had seen Judson's picture in the sonogram. But when I held him, nobody had to tell me to love him. There was, was an immediate, just, just involuntary love of this son. And what struck me there was, was not just how much I loved my son, but I felt like for the first time I understood what it, it meant to be a father. And so after I put my son down in the bassinet or whatever it was, I called my father. Because what, what I, I, was, I was weeping because I was sad because I realized... Every time I was disobedient to my dad growing up, every time I slammed the door in his face, every time I, I did something against him, I didn't know that. I didn't know that how it felt to love your son. And so what I'm saying here is when Christ came into the world and became imminent to us and showed us that this father God, he's not just like a father he doesn't just have some characteristics that make him the best version of fathers. But we can know his son. And we can embrace his son as ours. And as we embrace his son and know Jesus Christ for who he is, 
we can come to know the love of the Father. When Jesus is speaking of his relationship with the Father, which, by the way, Jesus loved to refer to God as Father. I mentioned it wasn't very often in the Old Testament. Well, Jesus broke that apart. Sixty-five times in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he refers to God as Father. One hundred times in the Gospel of John, Jesus refers to God as Father. He wants it to be very clear. God is our Father. That's how he instructs his disciples to pray as we read. But listen to John 17. Father, this is Jesus speaking. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me and where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these that know that you have sent me, I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Those are phenomenal verses from John 17, because what what they're saying to us, what they're saying is that Jesus desires, Jesus desires for all of us, his disciples, then and now, to know something of the love that he has experienced from the Father from before creation. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing that the Father God of the entire universe loved his Son so much and is now, out of his love for the whole world, sending his Son into the world? Not just that we could get a few things. Not just that we could be forgiven of our sins but that we could know his love. That we could, in the words of Galatians, be adopted. Galatians 4 says, When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So catch this. What Jesus is saying, what Paul is saying, is that we can be sons. You can have a father. I don't know if your father was a good one or a bad one. But the point is not that God is just the best version of the best best earthly father. And the point is not that God is just redeeming the the bad parts about your bad earthly fathers. The point is that God is something totally different. He is the father from whom every father on earth ought to find their identity as sons. So dad's in the room. The most important thing for you this Father's Day isn't being a better father. It's being a son. And the same is true for you mothers and for you children, for you singles. All of us need to be sons. We need to be adopted as a son of God by believing in the name of Jesus Christ to become his son, worthy of every inheritance. You don't give the riches of your glory just to anybody. You give it to your son. And he's saying he wants to give that to all of us. So you have a father. 
You have a father, this great father, who has revealed himself in his son that we might know him. But there's a problem. Not everybody is a son. Not everybody in this world is a son. Now, they're not a son of the father, but they're a son of something else. Look in chapter 2. In chapter 2, it says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So what Paul is setting up here is, look, guys, there's two family trees, okay? There's two family trees. One of them is that you're a son. You are receiving the inheritance, the riches of the badness. And you're following after that way. You're inheriting it. You're walking in it. You're developing new ways to experience the disobedience that your father set a pattern for. That's one way to be a son. And that's where all of us are apart from Christ. But what our Father, the one to whom we are truly accountable to, the one to whom every family on earth earth and in heaven must report at some point, we might not look to him, but we're accountable to him. And he's saying, I want you to come on that day as my son. My son. Not everybody is in this world. There are billions of people in this world that do not know the gospel of Jesus Christ. They do not know how to become a son. What Paul was trying to communicate somewhat here in chapter 2 and in the early part of chapter 3 was he was trying to appeal to the Ephesians to realize that the ability to be a son did not come through your ethnic and cultural heritage. There was a dilemma in the church. There was some wrong thinking in the church at the time that the people of God were those who were ethnically identifying their sons through circumcision. Now, I know that in our day, if you've been around the church very much, you're, you're not as much entangled in the circumcision versus uncircumcision debate. We've kind of moved past that as a church. But the principle of what Paul was teaching, sometimes we haven't. Because what Paul was teaching was that everyone can become a son. He was saying that he has brought those who are far off and he's brought those that are near into one in Christ. He's broken down the, the, the walls of hostility. He's preaching peace to everyone. For through him, through Christ, this is verse 18, we both, everyone, have access in one spirit to the Father. So everyone can be a son a son of the Father. But not everybody is. And I think one way that that comes up in our our thinking is when we start to identify people not based on their potential to be sons, but on something else. Let me tell you a way that this happened to me this last week. I don't know if you've read the news, but our region of of the world has been in the news. Uh, Our country just to the north, Iran, has been up to some uh, stuff bombing some ships, as they are wont to do. The tensions between our countries are at the worst that they've been in 30 years. Seems like military action, open conflict is pretty inevitable. And this is is our neighborhood. Dubai is within a, 
uh, just a, a few kilometers, miles, from where those ships were bombed. Iran is a one-hour plane flight away, just across the water. So I was talking with a friend about this earlier in the week, and, and this friend made a comment that I think unwittingly, I know what he meant, but here's what he said. He was thinking about it. He said, you know, I just wish that we would wipe Iran off the map. Now, in the last 30 years, the tensions between our governments have been escalating. But there's something else that's been happening in Iran. I don't know if you know this, but in the last 30 years, more people have come to faith in Jesus Christ in, in Iran than the last 1,300 years since the advent of Islam. The fastest growing church in the world for the last several years has been in Iran. Martin and Maria, who came to faith in our church, are just one of scores and hundreds and thousands of Iranians that have come to faith in Jesus Christ. Perhaps never before in the history of our nation has the disparity between the people of an enemy country been so different than their government. The Iranian people, many of them, Perhaps tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands of them are our brothers and sisters in Christ. So now the government has a responsibility for the safety and, um, and strength that they have. We afford that to them. I'm not trying to make a military point. I'm just trying to say as Christians, is our first outlook to the world military or missionary? When we look at the world, are we, are we thinking, man, we don't like those people. Those are the bad guys. Or are we thinking, those are sons of disobedience. How can we help them know the Father? How can we help them be part of our family? You know, many Father's Day sermons end up being kind of virtue instruction time. You know, we like moms. We, we give a good... Uh, build up to moms. We, we pass out some roses or, or whatever it is to encourage the moms. But dads, we're a little hard on. Come on, guys, build up, do better. Don't be so lazy. Well, I'm not here to give you virtues. What I hope you would walk away with today is vision. Vision that the Lord is calling for people around the world from every tribe and every tongue to be sons of him to be sons of the Father. And He is calling you as fathers and as mothers and as children and whoever, however the Lord has put you in life to be part of that. I mentioned I named my son, that first son that I was holding, I named him Judson because I, I named him after the, the first missionary that was sent out. Angela and I did, I should say that. His name was Adniram Judson. And I wanted to name him Adniram. Angela mercifully uh, said, no, Judson's good enough. Adoniram is not where we're going. But his name was Adoniram Judson. And he said this. Well, he said a lot of things, but this is one thing he said. How do Christians discharge this trust committed to them? The trust of the gospel. They let three-fourths of the world sleep the sleep of death, ignorant of the simple truth that a Savior died for them, content if they can be useful in the little circle of their acquaintances, they sit quietly and see whole nations perish for lack of knowledge. That, that quote, I've read it so many times, and it always strikes me. Am I being content 
in the little circle of my acquaintances, while whole nations perish for lack of knowledge, whole nations that the Father sent his Son to die for, that they might become sons, whole nations that the Father desires to come to repentance before the day of Christ Jesus. Am I living in my sonship, not finding my worth in myself, not finding my worth in what I have done, finding all of my worth in Jesus Christ? And am I extending that invitation to others to become sons of the Father? So, fathers, I want to end with an exhortation to you. I hope all of you are encouraged by God's word this morning. But, fathers, let's be men of vision for our families. Not vision to be seen by them as those who are good. Not just the best father on the block. Not just the most virtuous guy in the church. Not just the one who gives them good things. But let's be men that model the father's heart. The father's heart for the world. That our greatest desire for our children is not that they are known as our children, but they become known as sons. And our greatest desire for our neighborhoods and our city and the world is not that we become known, but that the Father is known. Let's pray to that end. Our God and Father, Lord, we look to you and we long to know you and we thank you that you have sent your Son that we might do so. Lord, as hard as it is to fathom your greatness, your otherness, your transcendence. Lord, thank you for sending your son that we might know something of who you are, that we might experience your love in Jesus Christ and long to give you the glory forever in his name. Father, I pray for the fathers in in this room. Lord, I pray that you would build them up, that you would encourage them, that they would leave strengthened by the power of your might. Lord, I pray by your spirit, you would be building them in their inner man according to Christ Jesus. And I pray that together with all the saints in this room, the mothers, the children, the singles, anyone in this room, Lord, I pray that the fathers, together with all of these saints, would know the love of Christ, which is unknowable. And that together as a church, community, evangelical, free church, would see more than they are able to ask or imagine or think abundantly beyond that, Lord? Would they be able to see abundantly beyond that happen here in Harrisburg to the glory of Jesus Christ? Not just now, but throughout every generation, forever and ever, until Christ comes. Amen.